We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. When I ask an individual or a couple to tell me about the last time they had sex, I'm really learning about their sex lives in action. I'm really hearing a story that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and there's a sequence of actions that are physical and and emotional and psychological, and I'm really understanding what the flow of an event for them is and where that flow is getting obstructed. Today, we welcome back renowned sex therapist and best-selling author of She Comes First. He is one of the most well-known voices in the field of sex therapy, integrating both a biological and psychodynamic understanding of sexuality, making his work both rich in theory as well as incredibly practical. Most recently, his new book, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex, discusses his methodology he uses to help couples in treatment get unstuck and connect sexually. We are so excited to have back Dr. Ian Kerner. So welcome, Ian. So nice to have you back on the pod. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to see you both. You are our first guest. That is so cool. And I I go on the website, and how often are you bringing such interesting people on? It's so um, diverse and eclectic, you know? Um, Well, I'm really happy to be back. Thank you. It's really an honor. Yeah. We've come a long way. (laughs) You have. You have. You're doing so much cool stuff. And again, I just love how... um, how mixed up it is with with people and um, you know different strands that you're yeah. taking. It's very zeitgeisty. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so you've come a long way too. I think when we had you on our podcast, we talked a lot about "She Comes First, your um, New York Times bestselling book, which I I think not only is brilliant, but it has so changed the way so many of my clients, people I know, have thought about sex. And now you've come out with a new book. Um, right. So when, so tell me about the last time you had sex, which is a wonderful title. And we, I'd love to kind of get into that title and, and yeah. how you came up with it and, and sort of where you've come from and why you wrote this book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so funny bringing up She Comes First and I have, I'd love to, to circle back with you on that a little bit, but that's also an example of where like the title really is what the book is about. 
and I didn't have to think about what the title should be. You know, sometimes you write a book or you write something and you're like, oh, what should I call this thing? And there's like 10 different things you're thinking about. And when She Comes First, it was just, it was always going to be She Comes First because that's what the book is. And with So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex, it's the same thing. It really couldn't have been titled anything else um, because that's the question that over the last, you know, at least the last 10 years, I've been sort of methodologically asking every new patient or couple uh, that I see for the first time. So it's really like um, an essential part of my, my methodology where couples individuals, mainly couples, are, are coming in. And, you know, I, I don't know if you find this in your practice. Um, and again, I'm doing a lot of, you know, sex therapy work. And people are really in pain. Like, they've waited far too long to come in. And they're just, they're living with shame. They're living with a sense of desperation. They're, they're, they're terribly angry at the person uh, next to them. And it's kind of like going to the dentist. Like, you go usually when you're in pain and you, you need to deal with something. And I feel like sex therapy is, is kind of similar. So... I'm very sex positive. I really want to move people into a place of hope and um, positivity. So it's really important um, that I have a process where by the end of the first session, I've really learned something about what's going on that I can try to practically change and that they can leave feeling like, hey, this guy gets us and uh, we're going to get on the other side of this. It's, so that's crucially important. And, and that question, so tell me about the last time you had sex, um, became really important because I found that I didn't really know when I was starting out how to structure a sex therapy session. Like how, how once you're sort of asking about an issue and learning about an issue, how do you actually begin to um, get a big picture of it and formulate what's happening and what you want to do about it? And I was originally trained um, to do sex histories and to do very detailed sex histories. And part of me would love to uh, have the time to really indulge in, in a very long, expansive sex history. But I just found that it, it wasn't really helping me get to the essence of what a patient was looking for, you know, asking about, you know, early masturbation history. It's very interesting and, and it could be relevant, but it also really might not be that relevant to the issue at hand. So when I asked uh, an individual or a couple to tell me about the last time they had sex, I'm really learning about their sex lives in action. I'm really hearing a story that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and there's a, a sequence of actions that are, are physical and, and emotional and psychological, and I'm really understanding what the flow of an event for them is and where that flow is getting obstructed. And so by, by looking at a single sexual event as kind of a world unto itself and sort of understanding the kind of narrative flow, um, we can really start to target the work very quickly. You know, I can really start to know, is this... Um, 
a desire issue and do we really need to focus on the desire framework or the environment for sex? Is this an an arousal issue? Is it an early stage arousal issue versus a late stage arousal issue? Is it a, an orgasm or a pleasure issue? And what are the roadblocks? What are the things that are coming up? Are they uh, physical? Are they psychological? Are they um, cultural? Are they related to trauma in some way? Like anything that's going to come up that needs to be addressed comes up by looking at a sexual event. And, and that's frankly, when people come in want having a sex problem, uh, that's what they're really focused on is, is fixing their sex life so that they can go home and have a good sexual experience. You know, it's, it's, it's often for me a little less about um, a broader identity issue. Or if it is a broader identity issue, it's that there's a conflict around identity as it's occurring with sex. So, um, I don't know, does that make sense? It's sort of like, you so know. So much sense. And I think I, I really appreciate that question yeah, because it, absolutely. it, it um, pushes them to be really specific. I find that oftentimes the couple and the therapist can collude with being really general, really vague, because sex is often really uncomfortable to talk about. And then you, you end up, both parties end up missing a lot. And it sounds like you yeah. get into really the nitty gritty, like having them walk through um, the blow by blow. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, um, what do they do? I don't watch sports at all, but when you like replay a sporting event, right? They do it in like slow motion and I guess look at, you know, it's so interesting, right? Because like with sports, and again, I don't watch any sport. I'm totally sports illiterate, but I, they're like, there's this event that's happening and something amazing or horrible happens. And then you go back to the footage. And what's so cool is everybody's sort of externalizing, right? They're looking at an external level at what just happened. They're not in it. They're observing it with curiosity. And so that is sort of what we do in, um, in this process is, is to look at something as an event to kind of externalize it and be curious and walk around it. And I'm sure it's also very organizing for clients because a lot of clients may come in with a negative yeah. feeling, a feeling of deadness or some negative or anger or whatever, but they might not actually know what it is specifically uh, that's happening for them. You know, sex is so interesting because sometimes they'll know what's happening. Like, I'm not having an orgasm or I'm not maintaining an erection or I'm not feeling uh, any desire. But across the board, people often don't know why they're experiencing this, and they certainly don't know what to do about it. So they know what's happening. And, and that's what makes sexuality uh, so beautifully complex, is that it's determined and informed by, by so many variables. I often say that, you know, sex is sort of like, uh, or libido is sort of like the stock market. It goes up and it goes down, and there are these big swings. But when you get into the details, there are so many different variables, you know, that are affecting those, those fluctuations. And with, um, you know, with sex, there can be, uh, you know, health and uh, diet and exercise and lifestyle or uh, self-esteem and uh, um, body issues. There can be relational issues around uh, attraction or anger or trust. And so, 
it's such a it's such a, a complex mix and soup of stuff going in and and people are they're just in the middle of it and so yes i think that that was that's a good 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 observation this process does sort of create an organizational kind of uh metaphor structure to work with can you give us an example of a couple that you've worked with just so we can get a sense of what this might like what this might look like? Like, what are the questions you ask? What kind of sure. information are you actually getting? Sure. Um, well, in the book, I, I, I give a, a little case study at the beginning, so it might it might be helpful for me to just do that because that's that's where my my mind is going. But you know, um, a couple comes in and. Um, she read my book, She Comes First, so that's why she picked me as a sex therapist. And um, she doesn't understand, se- oral, oral sex is very important to her. For her, it's the only way she can orgasm, right? So already, um, she has a very specific idea about her sexuality and what works for her and what doesn't work. People come in very rigid, so um, already she's, she, she can only have an orgasm through oral sex, and she doesn't understand um, why her, her partner's not getting with the program. Uh, and from his perspective, he is getting with the program. He's read my book once, maybe twice. He's uh, very obliging about oral sex. He um, goes down on her sometimes for 45 minutes to an hour. Um, she's co- <laughs> he's, committed, he's committed, but but she's telling him constantly, <laughs> you're doing it wrong and do this and do that. And uh, so from his perspective, like, you know, why does it always have to be oral sex? Like, what, why can't we, why can't there be another activity or another issue? So they come in and there's relational dimensions. Um, um, they had been engaged previously, um, like three or four years earlier, and had broken up over this kind of same issue, over a, a sexual discrepancy. Um, but they also came from, uh, in, in this case, from um, a Korean-American family, um, and they were under intense pressure both of them to get married, and because their families knew each other, intense pressure to, like, marry each other. And so they were sort of deciding to give it another chance, and they had been hoping that these issues would go away, uh, but they were were recurring. So there was also a lot of um, family system stuff coming into the room. So you can already understand, like, if you're a therapist sitting down with that, uh, it can be a little muddy, right? Like, where do you sort of go with something like that. So that's the other thing like I wanted to do is to make my life easier. Like I as an, a therapist starting out especially dealing with sexuality, I would have patients call me and I used to do consultations on the phone first. I don't do that anymore and they tell me in 15 minutes, well, I'm dealing with like, you know, a fetish and erectile impairment and I have a a curvature of the penis and do you know about that and I'd be like, fucking is it okay if I mm-hmm. just said that I'm Please. sorry? I'd be like, oh, I'd yeah. be like terrified. Yeah. It's like, how am I going to deal with this? And I was just scared of like every patient's issues coming in. <laughs> like, how am I ever going to wrap my mind around this? So you just go to like, so tell me about the last time you had sex. And it's just, there's something very universal about that. Right. You know, like people can have all mm-hmm. different types of issues, but like, it's just, uh, it's just a, a succinct methodology. Um, so... Uh, I hope that siren in the background isn't bothering it's you. It's fine. Um, okay. Oh, 
So, okay. you know, with that couple that's come in, yeah, that's one of those situations where you could easily get distracted. You could start talking about five years ago when they were together. You could talk about the family issues. And I just go to, okay, now I have a sense of the issue and what they want to improve. Um, they don't want me to question whether or not they should get married or talk about their families. They, they want to make sex work and get on the other side of this. So I'm going to honor that. And so I'll ask them, so tell me about the last time you had sex. It's a simple question and the information you're getting back can often be simple too. So I don't want to like overly complicate this um, as an approach. So, um, you know, they start to talk about it. Well, she tends to um, have a lot of just internally generated desire. She's sort of always horny. She's always interested in sex and they can come home and they can get in bed and she can get undressed and she could just say, you know, I, I'm ready, you know, go down on me. And, and pretty much ask him to sort of um, help with this bodily... It's almost like helping with this bodily function. Mm. Like, I, I'm ready. So um, already in the sex script, you're, you're immediately hearing, like, what, you're immediately asking a question, like, what is the environment for sex? Like, so this is how sex always gets um, initiated. Wow, so he's going... They're going straight to oral sex. Like, well, what about any kind of arousal runway leading up to that? And then you'll... Then he'll say, you know, and then... Um, uh, we're sort of doing it a lot, uh, doing it for a long time, and he's getting it all wrong. Well, it, it already makes a lot of sense because they're moving to a kind of direct genital stimulation without any kind of... Um, seduction. Um, seduction, yeah. romance, um, mm. building up of um, arousal. Um, so immediately... Um, so, so this this couple is interesting um, because immediately coming out of the first session, I know exactly what to target. It's like, can we focus on a different kind of on-ramp into oral sex? Can we resequence oral sex in the sex script, as I like to call it, you know, and just push it down into act two or something like that as opposed to being act one. I do use the metaphor of a sex script as well once I'm introducing couples to this language. So in the case of this couple, um, they were totally interested in that. They got it. And then we started to co-construct, well, what would that arousal runway look like? And uh, she was sort of so angry and pissed off at him that she didn't want to be touched by him. Um, she was sort of fed up with, with just like her nervous system was kind of bristling at um, touch. So... I knew, like, well, can we focus on maybe then psychological arousal? If, if, if body-based somatic arousal uh, can't really be cultivated, uh, maybe we can get your erotic minds going a little bit. And they both like that idea. And I do a little psychoed, as you know, you talked about with your, your group work around different types of arousal and the importance of um, psychological arousal. So I would say from week one to week four... We basically built in this new arousal runway uh, of psychological stimuli and enhanced the sort of erotic connection between them and actually, you know, pushed oral sex a little bit down the sex script and things were going 
perfectly. Actually, she went into oral sex with much more arousal built up. Uh, he was more aroused from the psychogenic stimulation. I should say he would also lose his erection uh, in, previously in coming in during these long oral sex episodes. So again, you just see the muddiness. Like There's so many things just being thrown into the, into the mix of what to deal with. Um, so he was getting much stronger um, erections, and it became really important because now she was sort of getting what she was interested in, uh, orgasms through oral sex, um, but he really wanted intercourse. He wanted penis and vagina intercourse, and we'd been working together, seeing each other every other week for about four sessions, so we're already into uh, month two, and she started to have a real panic reaction in the room. And so that's interesting. So now we're into the sex script. We've kind of modified and improved it, and we want to augment it a little bit, right? Or we want to evolve it or change it up a little bit. And it really kind of... Um, paralyzed her. And she just felt like she had a lot of assumptions around intercourse. She thought it was a very selfish act for men. She thought it was very non-pleasurable. And she felt like when men have intercourse, they're narcissistic. They don't care about their partners. And, and he's going to leave me behind. Mm. That became... That became the emotional sort of material underneath. He's going to leave me behind. Which sounds um, historic. Exactly, exactly. So that's so exactly right. It is historic. And, uh, you know, that's where, you know, as a sex therapist, I want to now put on my psychotherapy hat and work a little more psychodynamically. Um, I want to, I have a, I'm trained in trauma as well. And so, you know, putting on a little bit of a trauma hat. So I really want to explore this feeling of being left behind. And I just want to say what's so interesting is, again, it's coming up in the sex script, right? Like, I don't have to look for this. Um, I don't have to search for what's going on. It's, it's already coming up as we're trying to improve what I sometimes call sex in action, right? It's a sex in action approach. So now we're going to really take some time to segue. And, and this is where um, I put my trauma hat on. And here's another interesting clinical choice. Do I continue to work with them as a couple, right? Simone, you just said there's something historic mm -hmm. happening here. Do I continue to work with them as a couple or do I take time to work with her individually to create a, a safe space around what could be a historic issue that I'm sensing? You sensed it just from me telling mm -hmm. it and, and I certainly sense that in the room. So. My preference is always to continue with the couple's work until I cannot continue because I think that, especially with sex, couples don't have the opportunity to talk very much in constructive and vulnerable ways. So I want to, you know, maintain that space. So at that point, I'm going to move into um, a mode of couples therapy, which is about him becoming more of a witness and sort of being present, but receding backward into the background a little bit in the session so that uh, she and I can really talk and that he can really witness what's happening. Um, so... Do you frame that for them? Like, I, do, actually. I do now. actually. I do actually. I'm like, yeah. he's because mm -hmm. you know he had a lot of ideas. Oh, I sort of know where that comes from. Like he he knew historically also. It's, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but like, let's maybe hear it in a different way. 
right? Like it's important, like people sometimes know each other's stories. My wife knows everything about my childhood and we've been married for 20 years and sometimes I can still tell her something and she's like, oh, I totally forgot about that and it'll bring her to tears because, you know, I had some rough stuff in my childhood. So like we can know the story of each other's lives, but that doesn't mean that we experience or, or feel it or, or can't see it anew. Um, so, you know, with her, we just sort of explored this feeling of left being left behind. And uh, it certainly happened in, in previous relationships with um, certainly with intercourse and sex. Again, she's a highly sexual person. Sex is kind of an outlet. It's almost a kind of coping mechanism for her to deal with her stress and, and anxiety. Um, so when her sexual function is kind of impaired in a relationship, um, it really becomes a, a front of mind anxiety. So she'd had this issue recurringly, um, but then I did some sort of somatic trauma work. And, and I don't really, I don't practice, although I'm, I'm trained in some EMDR and trained in some trauma modalities. I, I wouldn't be the best therapist to go very, very deep into trauma processing. But, but I did know enough to sort of try and get her grounded and resourced in the moment and to help her follow the feeling in her body of being left behind and where it manifested for her. And it really did go back to... Um, uh, her childhood and to growing up um, as uh, a daughter, the only uh, daughter in a fairly patriarchal family. Um, they grew up in, in upstate New York and um, the uh, father was uh, an avid fly fisherman as his hobby and he would always take his uh, older son fly fishing and he would take the younger son fly fishing and she was the middle child and she would never be invited to go fly fishing and that was the only time anybody got to bond with the father when he wasn't um, Working and she'd get left behind with the mom and she'd have to do chores and, and other things related to the house. And, um, and she was very angry and she was very upset about that. And she said she actually learned the art of um, creating the, the flies the, for the fly fishing. Um, I guess it's very intricate. I don't know too much about it, but like these flies are like handcrafted with uh, string and mm. feather and whatever it is to attract I don't even know what you fish for when you're fly fishing. Trout? A, a, a trout or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but right, like she would like create them. She's yeah. so yeah. mocked for him. And, yeah. and they'd leave her behind. And, you know, eventually she sort of stopped caring and forgot about it. I mean, she had a lot of resilience and she made friends and she found other things to do on the weekends. And she entered into adolescence and became interested in boys. But that feeling of being left behind, um, especially by uh, a male attachment figure, uh, was always um, deep in her body. And, and again, she grew up in a very sort of... Uh, patriarchal structure and so I think she um, you know she was she was feminine she was very feminist she had studied women's studies as a minor in, in college as I recall and so it, there started to be just a lot of conflicts around sex and and her feelings around patriarchy but it was very emotionally moving and um, 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 her partner in the room as a witness started crying and uh, he felt it very deeply. I started, I mean, you just, when you're in the room and you just can't not feel these things because it was so sad. And, and he said, you know, again, I, I knew that story, but, um, 
I just never felt that story really. So I think the power of doing trauma therapy as in, in couples work is very important. Um, and, and having a partner there as a very empathetic witness is really important. I've used that modality quite a bit to get on the other side of discrepancies and uh, impasses in couples work. And so what's amazing is that um, that really informed um, his approach to oral sex, especially. And it really just informed the sense of feeling that he was able to bring. And, and it gave him more arousal and more connection. And, and it was cathartic for her. And so she was able to, to trust him with a transition into intercourse. And I don't know that it ended up becoming the, uh, the most pleasurable act for her. But I know, um, I know that... that that they were in an egalitarian relationship where she felt that that behavior was extremely patriarchal and had a lot of issues with it. And it was also important for him to have a sense of both connection and uh, affirm his own sense of masculinity, that they were able to get to a place in a very well-balanced egalitarian relationship um, where they were able to broaden their sex scripts and like their sex script. And like so many of the um, uh, couples I work with, once something sort of gets accomplished, they, they go and they, they don't come back until there's another problem to deal with. So I don't really know how they ended up doing and how much of the psychogenic arousal they kept in the runway or how integrated intercourse got. But, but I know that they got married and I know that they had a kid and... Uh, wow. You know, Sounds like we'll you did see. some powerful wow. work with them. Yeah. And, and if anything, just it, got them aligned on the same team rather than playing against each other. You know, him feeling rejected and her feeling like her needs weren't met. And they're, they're fighting against each other rather than going on that journey together. A hundred percent. And to be honest, um, again, it really comes down to I learned a little bit about the problem. I was intrigued and confused and a little scared of the problem because it was so complex systemically and um, sexually and relationally. And that simple question, so tell me about the last time you had sex, saved me as a therapist and allowed me to kind of save them. So you use the term sex script, and I love that. I think it kind of beautifully ties together these different acts and what sounds like almost going deeper into the script. I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about you know, what, what, what does the whole kind of structure of that script or narrative look like? What are the different acts? What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's, so, that's an interesting question. Um, so in my mind, it's a simple question. So tell me about the last time you had sex. But it's kind of like, um, you know, it's like a car runs really well and looks beautiful, but the engine is pretty complex underneath. But I, I rarely open the hood to look in there and I wouldn't know how to identify. With, with a question like, so tell me about the last time you have sex, I can really look under the hood and it is pretty it's it, there is some complexity to it in terms of how I'm I'm asking simple questions, but I'm, I'm thinking about them in, in nuanced, uh, complex ways. And there is a process in my mind that um, 
that I've outlined um, that frankly draws it draws from the work of uh, Masters and Johnson. It draws from the work of uh, you know Rosemary Basson and uh, Emily Nagoski, and it kind of is a model of just uh, human sexual response that um, I would sort of call like, hey, this is kind of what an ideal sex script could look like or an ideal sexual event could look like. There would be some kind of call to action, right? People are deciding to have sex for some reason or another or else they're not going to. They're just going to do other things with their life. So already there's sort of a call to action around how did sex get going. And so I'm very interested in exploring a couple's desire framework. Uh, are they in the same framework? Do they both get going very quickly? Does one partner get going quickly? Does the other person partner not get going so quickly? Like, what is the desire framework and to what extent is it clashing? And most of the time it is clashing because if I'm someone who gets turned on, you know, just at the sight of my partner coming out of the shower and my partner is someone who, uh, needs a, a, a differently constructed environment that cultivates or percolates over time, um, our points of view about each other are going to be different, right? Like, why doesn't she ever want me in a sexy, spontaneous, or why doesn't he ever want me in a sexy, spontaneous way? And he or she, the partner, might be thinking like, why is it always just about sex and not about... Uh, other ways of connecting or creating an environment together or a relational environment. So already I'm looking at sort of what's the call to action, which is kind of a, a dramaturgical term. And then I'm looking at what is that sort of desire framework and how are they embarking? So I use the term embarking quite a bit um, as, as an early phase. And then I'm really interested in as they're embarking, how are they cultivating arousal? Um, and so many couples, um, especially heterosexual couples, pretty much go straight to intercourse. That intercourse is kind of the, 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 the dominant activity and what comes before intercourse uh, is often just sort of a, a prologue to, to keep it in dramatic terms. And um, so, so it's a kind of heterosexual sex scripts are pretty overdetermined by intercourse. Um, in, in the book, I talk about a really interesting study I came across that asked, uh, that looked at the uh, most recent sexual event of 25,000 um, gay and bisexual men. And 65% um, did not engage in intercourse the last time they had sex. And I found that fascinating because the statistically it's well plus 90% for, for heterosexual couples. And so it, it begs the question, you know, what were gay and bisexual men doing if 65% of the time, if they were only having intercourse 35% of the time? Well, they were engaging in outer course-based behaviors that are not particularly surprising, kissing, uh, hugging, oral sex, manual stimulation of the genitals, um, about 12 behaviors in all. But what is really surprising is that um, gay and bisexual men were combining those behaviors in 1,300 different combinations with anywhere from six to nine behaviors per combination. So that's basically 1,300 different sex scripts um, that are non-intercourse based. You know, So I, just, I already love just the way the sex script can be 
deconstructed, constructed in ways that are personalized to pleasure and don't have to follow any kind of um, cultural narrative um, around what they need to look like. Of course they do. In fact, the one area where gay men often get into issues, at least in my practice, is with uh, roles around intercourse and topping and bottoming, right? You know, so it's just a, it's amazing how like that one activity of a penis going into something uh, is so privileged and creates uh, so many issues uh, for, for so many different people. Um, but so I am interested in that early phase of arousal and the extent to which um, above the waist behaviors and sensual behaviors are being engaged in and also mainly above the neck behaviors. I think a, a big problem with American sex scripts uh, or people living in America that I see who are international is that um, sex scripts are pretty dehydrated of um, erotic life. There's not a lot of psychological arousal. We're not bringing our erotic selves. Um, you know, I have little kids. Well, they're big now, but they were little. And when they were little, they used to play make-believe, right? Like at ages four or five. And they could have nothing but no props and create an entire world, you know, cops and robbers, heroes and villains. And like, I often say there's more power play happening in a preschool than there is in an adult's bedroom. And so what happened to our capacity to play make-believe? or to engage our minds in that kind of uh, psychogenic arousal that we know is so arousing. So I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to that in a sex script. Um, I can keep going, but I, I want to let you interject because we just will keep moving through every, every phase, <laughs> including what I call sort of the erotic thread between sexual events, which is decoupling decoupling the act of sex or whatever defines sex from um, erotic connection. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. You know, I, one thing that I, just as you were talking, that I was curious about is that, um, you know, we're talking about all like the different concrete steps of the sex script. And... There's also something you talk about in, the, in your book about noticing the, the, the nonverbals or the way somebody talks about their mm -hmm. sexuality or the way that they talk about the first time they had, the, the last time they had sex. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what is it that you learn about someone or a couple? 
from the way they're that's speaking what, about That's really interesting. Sexuality. So, I mean, first off, you learn about what they're missing, and, you know, you learn, um, do they approach sex as a, an erotic adventure? Do they approach it as a, a stress reliever? Do they approach it as something that's just relationally very functional? Do they approach it as, you know, lovemaking? Because they're missing. They're missing the dimension that, it, that they're most interested in, in at this point in the life cycle, right? Like if they were coming in at 20, um, they might be most interested in just the fun of it and the adventure and the novelty. But if they're coming in at 30, they might have a different one. So in the way that they're talking about their sex script, I'm also learning about um, uh, relationally uh, the themes that they're, they're interested in. Um, what's also interesting is just... Um, you know, especially being here in New York and, and, you know, with the exception of COVID, I'm really back in the room with people. So a lot of the patients I see are, are fairly um, sophisticated in their, in their language. Um, they can describe uh, a lot of their experience um, quite well, almost in a literary manner. You know, they can really describe their subjective experience, but not when it comes to sex. People just don't really have that. They just literally don't have the vocabulary or the language to um, capture what they're experiencing. So I have to do a lot of um, uh, introduction of vocabulary. I have to uh, ask, like, if I'm asking a question, it's almost like multiple choices. Well, did, how did it make you feel? Did it make you feel like it, like this or, or maybe like that? Or maybe this, something like this was coming to mind. And I know we all do that as therapists anyway. Um, but I think I have to do it more so because otherwise they won't really get sort of, they won't know where they're going with what they want to say exactly. So there's a lot of um, um, helping with language. And I think a lot of that comes back to, um, you know, growing up in mainly in either sex negative homes where sex was um, shamed or... Um, uh, disparaged in some way, um, or sex avoidant homes where uh, sex wasn't spoken about at all, so it didn't exist as really anything to talk about, and so any language that occurred was coming from some other source, uh, but not through the, the mirroring of a um, safe and secure attachment with a, a primary caregiver. Um, and and rare is, rare is a, a really sex-positive home. You know, rare is, uh, you might have people who say, oh yeah, my parents were having, um, you know, sex all the time. And that is positive. That is positive to know, um, that your parents were sexually engaged. I mean, parents, uh, well, you, you both, you, you know, when parents often worry about kids right coming in on the bedroom and seeing them have sex, that becomes like, we got to get the lock on the door. And I always say like, yeah, sure. Get the lock on the door. But Unless you can find it, I don't know of any study to really point to kids being traumatized from like walking in on their parents and their parents like suddenly pull the blankets up over them, right? Kids are more traumatized by believing that their parents were in loveless, sexless marriages. You know, that's, that's the, the trauma. So a lot of that loss of language um, just goes back to how we learn language. 
was just going to say, you also have such a particular language that you use um, that, that's both very technical. I mean, I'm just even thinking about the term like psychogenic arousal um, that's so specific. But right. then also your own, your own words that you use, <laughs> outer course. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ill clitorate. I mean, that, that you yeah. have, and I'm just curious um, if that's particular for you. You're not using like colloquial language right. around sex. Right, right. Well, I think I'm starting with what I consider sort of a neutral language of science. And then I think as you bring that up, what I've started to learn is I'm bringing up things in ways that people have to ask questions about. You know, like, what do you mean by psychogenic arousal? outer course as opposed <laughs> well you know like, so I think I realized that like maybe a lot of these terms come because I want people to ask questions about them you know embarkment phase you know erotic thread yeah they get curious it stimulates the mind it's a it's yeah. a kind of psychogenic arousal in of itself yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna also ask so um as you know, uh, I recently became a parent. Parent to be. Simone is soon to be a pa parent to be. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about creating a, a sex positive home. Yeah. Um, Since we live in such a yeah, sex negative yeah, I think so. Culture. I mean, I think, first of all, um, modeling um, a real relationship that includes. Um, love and lust and flirtation. I mean, you know, marriages are hard. I've been married for 20 plus years. And uh, if I wasn't like sexually attracted and interested in my wife, I, I don't know why we would continue with, with, with all of this. I mean, we'd still be hanging out together, dealing with the kids and everything, but like, it's a big engine of expansiveness and connection for us, you know? Um, and yet we also argue a lot. And, you know, so I think it's, it's great just that um, our kids get to see both sides and, and, and they know that uh, both can coexist as opposed to just the arguing, which I think a lot of kids grow up and not knowing what happens behind closed doors. So I just think, you know, I'm not saying to be overly sexualized, but to just um, to not uh, exile sexuality from the home. Um, you know, I had a little bit of a different, um, because I've been doing this work since my kids have, for their entire lives, um, I've always, like, um, gotten, like, Amazon boxes with sex toys in them or, like, books as my kids were reading and see. Like, I remember when my uh, older son was uh, in a Bjorn and I'd walk him around, I had to stop into... Um, Babeland for something to say hello to someone and he he picked up a, a vibrator without anybody realizing it and we were like walking around on the street and he was flopping this vibrator around and uh teeth <laughs> teething teeth so like you know I definitely had no um chat oh we had a Somebody sent me, like, a very elaborate vulva puppet, you know? Like, I don't know mm -hmm, if you've seen, there are mm -hmm. these educational... They're beautiful. I think they cost hundreds uh. of dollars, and uh, our family dog <laughs> had uh, discovered it and attacked it and made it, like... <laughs> he became territorial. Tattered. So, like, it became his, like, tug-of-war toy, and, uh, and he'd bring it, like, if a guest came, the first thing he'd do is, like bring this vulva puppet and put it in somebody's lap and they'd be like 
What is this chewed up, tattered thing I'm looking at? And my son would be like, the dog's name was Houdini. And he's like, oh, that's Houdini's vagina. So, uh, you know. That's beautiful. You really normalized. It was part of their life growing up. And and if I wasn't a sex therapist, I would still be normalizing. You know, I would still be looking at that and saying, like, on TV, you know, that seems a little like porn sex. Not that there's anything wrong with porn, like there's a place for porn sex, but it doesn't necessarily look like real sex. Um, if I felt like right. my, my kid was developmentally at a stage where they're interested in that, and, uh, and kids are developmentally mm-hmm. interested. I have a, an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, and trust me, if you don't bring it up, they will not bring it up, um, but that does not mean that they're not very, very curious and that they don't have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm often on the um, phone doing like fact-checking on a story um, that has some psycho-ed, some sex, sexual psycho-ed, and like for some reason my younger son always gets into the room during those moments and he's looking for a charger, some phone charger, but he's soaking yeah. in a lot of information about orgasm yeah, and penis absolutely. and vaginas. So I know we need to wrap up soon, but I'm also wondering on the flip side for couples who are having children who just had children, you know, a lot of them struggle with maintaining their sex life with their partner. Do you have any advice for parents, especially new parents, um, in terms of how to maintain a healthy, satisfying sex life despite having a lot more on their plate? Yeah, Yeah, I think think parenthood is like... um it, it, it's like uh, a boot camp for your sex life, or it's just so it's so challenging. I mean, especially as a parent, I don't. Uh, I mean, as an as as someone, I'm I'm far from being an empty nester. But with adult, more adult kids who don't want to hang out with me as much and can go and take care of themselves, like I found like a renaissance in my sex life that just was was absent as my kids were were younger because it was so draining and they were so around. So really, almost from for us, really from the third trimester of pregnancy through like I would say age 10 or 11 with two kids, sex was challenged in different ways, whether it couldn't happen at all, uh, whether there were libido uh, imbalances, uh, anger and resentment, um, uh, around sex ruts, uh, having to be open about how we each take responsibility for our own pleasure and and feel okay about it. I mean, so there's a lot, and it's amazing because if you have those conversations, it brings you closer together and really helps develop a closeness and near experience around an area that you probably didn't have to discuss in that way. I think the main thing that I would say is that, like, Hey, where there's a will, there's a way, and it's really worth having the willingness and continually cultivating the willingness to hold on to sexuality because it's a it's a vital energy, uh, it's a vital relational energy that sort of replenishes um, the whole system. If you can have that connection, just study after study, just looks at the benefits, the relational benefits, the individual benefits of um, uh, remaining sexual and couples really, they don't lose their sex drives, or if they do lose their sex drives, very often what they've lost is their willingness to try and engage their sex drives. Um, so hold on to some willingness. Just hold on to the willingness. And, and it doesn't always have to be 
sex. Uh, it doesn't have to always be pleasure, totally pleasure-based or orgasm-based. But your erotic selves and your sexual selves should be able to have a place in this new family system. They should still be able to hang out and see each other and talk to each other, even if it's just for 30 seconds before you're going to work. You know what I mean? Yes. Thank and you. we really encourage, I mean, your book was brilliant. Um, it was so full of just like rich information for therapists, for the layperson. Um, so we want all of our listeners to go out and get it. Where, where should they, should they go onto Amazon? Yes. Should they go onto your website? Where would be the best place um, to get your book? I would say you can go to, I would say go to your indie bookstore, first of all, and, and buy a physical copy. I don't know. I'm like old school, like, I hate the audio, but I don't, I shouldn't say I hate it. I don't love the sound of my own voice. I don't love reading things on Kindles or on screens. And, and I, I write books and I read books to be read physically. So I would say go to your indie bookstore, um, pick up a copy, and then maybe go to Amazon and write a review of it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because, or you, yeah, and yeah, it's a go. book to be... I was just going to say it's a book to be revisited, right? It's not a book that you just, you know, read once. It's, it's really, it's, it's one that the couples can revisit so. again the, and again. You know, the, the first yeah. half to two thirds is sort of just all about kind of breaking down a sex script and sort of building your ideal sex script, sort of understanding how you're having sex and also understanding how you want to change it. And then the second sort of, 40% of the book is really addressing specific issues that often occur um, in relationships. Right. And that's the best when you can kind of go back, identify what issues are coming up in the moment, pick it up, put it down. Like it's a, it's a book that I feel like you can write, as Sina mentioned, go back to. You don't necessarily finish it. You read it when it's relevant. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, a lot of it's funny. I've been doing like sort of like pod, some podcasts or some media stuff and everyone wants to just tie things to, to COVID and COVID has had such a huge effect on, um, on our sex lives, but the book was written prior to COVID while COVID was happening and it's meant to, to live certainly beyond COVID. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us you, again. This has been great. Absolutely. We always Thank learn a lot. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk. Thanks, Sam. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.